Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Now, we have been anticipating getting to this section of the Revelation, where we have been dealing with some hardship, with difficulty, with judgment, with God in His righteous judgment, dealing with the sin of the world. We've seen in chapters 17 and 18, we saw that in order for God to totally redeem this world, He had to redeem the false religion and the idolatrous religion of the tribulation that existed from Babel to the tribulation time. And he dealt with that in chapter 17. In chapter 18, then we saw that God also had to redeem the world of it is government and its economic powers that had been controlled by the enemy, the social influences by the enemy. He had to clean that up as well. And then we saw last week that the final thing that he has to deal with is he had to deal with a military might. That all the nations everywhere had their military and that God would have to deal with that. And he dealt with that at the battle of Armageddon. There's only one other deal that has to be dealt with. And that is to deal with old Satan. He's been cast in the abyss right now. But after a thousand year reign, he's going to be let go for a little bit. And then he's going to be judged and thrown into the fire. That's the only thing we have left. But right now, John is, sees something that is exciting. He sees something that thrills his heart. He sees something that he just is overcome by. So overcome that he wants to bow down before the angel who shows him this. And he's overcome because he gets to experience and to see two things that are glorious. One is called the four hallelujahs. The four hallelujahs. The hallelujahs that he hears from heaven. And the other is the marriage of the lamb. The marriage of the lamb. So let's read together here in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. That's what it says. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot... Who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying. Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come 
and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. I hope you leave your Bibles open as we look at the four hallelujahs of the revelation and the marriage of the Lamb. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We ask that you would take the Word of God, penetrate it into our heart and our spirit, help us to know truth that will transform. And then, Lord, that we'll leave here living differently because of the experience we've had together in worship and the study of your word. And we ask, Lord, right now that the Holy Spirit of God would prepare our hearts, keep any distractions that we might have in our mind, cast those away. Any distraction that happen around us, we pray for that to not hinder us in any way. But, Lord, for us to be able to concentrate this morning on the word of God for a few moments to allow it to pierce our heart. And we'll praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us know the word hallelujah. But did you know that it is only in the word of God four times? It is in the word of God four times, and all four times it's in this chapter, chapter 19. The four hallelujahs of the revelation. The four hallelujahs of the Word of God. Now, we know that hallelujah is a universal language. Did you know that? Hallelujah means praise the Lord in every language. No matter what language you go to, you can say hallelujah, and hallelujah is the same in every one of those languages. The only difference in that would be is that the Greek form of hallelujah is the word alleluia. Greek is alleluia, where the Hebrew is hallelujah, but it means to praise the Lord, the highest praise of Almighty God. And here, there are four fourfold hallelujahs. This is what it says now, there in verse 1 of chapter 19. After these things I heard, after what things? After what took place in chapter 17, where he dealt with that corrupt religion. After what he did in chapter 18, when he dealt with the corrupt government and economics and the social system. After he dealt with, even though it's in chronolo- not in chronological order, what we talked about last week in chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon, when he defeated all of those kings and all of those and cast the beast and the old false prophet into the pits of hell, and he then takes the old enemy in chapter 20, we found out, and put him in the abyss for a thousand years. It says, after these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! You ought to say hallelujah for that, amen? I'm telling you, when God deals with the sin of the world, 
And when God's going to take the old beast and the false prophet and throw them in the pits of hell, and he's going to tie up old Satan who's been causing you problems for all of these years, and he's going to put him in the abyss where he can't bother you anymore and tempt you anymore, whenever that happens, there is a reason to say hallelujah. And it says here, hallelujah, what? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, who is it that's leading forth this hallelujah? It says there in verse 1, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. You find that in another place. It's found in chapter 6. In chapter 6 of the Revelation, it introduces those who were the martyrs during the tribulation time. Those who are martyred, and remember they were found underneath the altar, and they're asking Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to avenge our death? When are you going to bring judgment on those who have killed us? And it says that whenever they spoke forth, it spoke as a great multitude. So that same term, that same phrase is here. So leading out in this first hallelujah are those who have been martyred and killed during this tribulation time. Now remember... That all the church is gone. It was gone at the rapture. But even though the church is gone, the word of God was left here. And there were going to be those two bold witnesses of God that he sends forth. And 144,000 Jews were going to get saved and be 144,000 Billy Grahams who are evangelizing the world. And in the midst of that, there are going to be Jews as well as Gentiles who had never heard the word that are going to be saved. But many of them will be saved based on the fact that they're going to be martyred. But whenever they give their heart to Christ, it's going to cost them their lives. And as they are dying and they are there under the altar with that great voice, they say, God, when are you going to do it? Now that same voice here in chapter 19, those same people, those same tribulation saints are crying out to God and saying, hallelujah, for salvation and glory and power belong to you. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. God's judgments are true and righteous. And what? For he has, number one, judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her immorality. That takes us back to chapter 17. Remember what he said about that corrupt, idolatrous religion? He said, that is the old harlot, the old harlot who is riding upon the scarlet beast. And he describes vividly about that religion, that false idolatrous religion of the tribulation that God is going to deal with. Well, these who are the tribulation saints are saying, praise be to God for he has judged those. He has judged that false idolatrous religion that kills so many of God's saints. He's now judged it. He has avenged the blood of his bond servants on her. Therefore, number one, hallelujah. Thank you. Praise you, God. For you have judged that old false religion that kills so many of us. And now you are our salvation and you are our power and you are our glory. And we give you praise. First hallelujah. The second hallelujah then is in verse 3. And a second time they said, you ought to circle that word, they said. They, who's they? Same ones who had said it to start with. The same tribulation saints, they're going to give a second hallelujah. And what's that second hallelujah? Here it is, verse 3. Hallelujah, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. Who is this that that they're talking about has been judged? He's talking about chapter 18. 
In chapter 18, that old Babylonian city, the Babylonian government, the Babylonian economics. You remember when everybody was crying when Babylon was tore down? It says even those who were the passengers on the ship were crying when it was destroyed in one hour. In one day it was destroyed. And it talked about that in verse 8 of chapter 18. It says, for this reason in one day her plague will come pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Go back to chapter 19. Listen to what it says. And a second time they said, hallelujah, Lord, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. The second hallelujah is thank you, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dealing with that religion, not only religion of chapter 17, but in chapter 18, that government and the economics and the whole system of this world that's been tainted by sin and also has caused those who are believers to be put to death. Now you have judged and her fire and her smoke is lifted forever and forever. Those are leading forth the hallelujahs. Then there is a third hallelujah and someone joins. Look what verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. I should be reminded, who are these? Those 24 elders are who? They represent the who? Old Testament saints, 12 of them being represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 of them represented by the apostles who represent the church or the New Testament era. And whenever we were way back in the first part of Revelation, we said those 24 elders represent all of those redeemed from the Old Testament and New Testament era at this time as they sit on those thrones judging with God. And now these 24 elders are leading out in worship. They're leading out in worship of God. They're joining in the praise of God with the third hallelujah. But not only them, it says the four living creatures. Who were they? They were the cherubim, remember, who are sitting before the throne of God to carry out the activity of God. They are primarily responsible for the activity of God that is going to happen in relationship to the world. Therefore, when it comes to the judgment that God's going to bring on the world, those cherubim, those four living creatures are involved in that. But wait a minute. When it comes to the praise of God and the adoration of the Son of God, who's going to be leading out that to lead the world? Those four cherubim. They're going to join in. Those four living creatures are going to join in in the praise and adoration of God. Let me ask you a question. Just think about it rationally. Do you think the angels of God get more joy out of judging the sinners of the world or by praising the Lamb of God? I hope you'd understand that. They get greater joy out of praising the Lamb of God. The the greatest thing they've done in the book of Revelation so far is leading forth in the hallelujahs to praise and exalt the Son of God. This is the highest thing they can do. Wait a minute. Before you start talking about angels, what's the highest thing you can do? (laughs) What's the most important thing that you do? What should give you the greatest joy in life? Now, don't don't condemn yourself. Don't condemn yourself by what you're saying. Think about it just a minute. Think about it just a minute. 
What gives you the greatest joy? What's supposed to give you the greatest joy? What's supposed to be your highest calling? It's supposed to be to praise Almighty God. To praise Almighty God. Now, don't say, amen, hallelujah, great and wonderful, and then not praise God. If that's your highest calling, then you ought to be busy praising God. Amen? So that means whenever we're here praising God and singing songs, that don't mean you sit there and, and don't say anything. It doesn't mean that your mind is a million miles away about I wonder what I'm going to eat when I get out of here. I wonder what we're going to look at this afternoon. I wonder what we're going to do. You're supposed to be praising God. The highest calling is to praise God. The most important thing we do here when we gather in the morning is to praise God. Did you believe? Can you believe the preacher said that? It is. The most important thing we do is to praise God. But if you will praise God like you ought, your heart will be open to what? To receive a word from God. See, whenever you are willing to praise God, it opens up your spirit and your heart to be receptive to the word of God. If you're not a praiser of God, your heart's going to be closed off many times to the word of God. So the greatest thing that they could do, the highest call, the most wonderful thing that they do in the book of Revelation is right here when they're saying hallelujah to God. But not only them, it's us. We're supposed to be joining in with them. We're going to be joining in then, right? We're going to be a part of that then. We're going to be those 24 elders praising God. Well, let's do it now. Let's not just wait till that time. And what is their praise? Listen to what the praise is. Unusual. It says, amen. Our amen, hallelujah. Did you know that amen, and, and you know, we don't have a lot of ameners around here. I'd, I'd faint and fall out if we had very many ameners. I'd just, I'd just die right here. But, but we don't have very many. But amen is the greatest affirmation in God's word. It is, it is the holy affirmation of God's word. Whenever a covenant was, was built around God's promises, it usually ended up with an amen. It's not just an agreement, I agree with what you're saying, but it's an affirmation of truth. It's not saying, yeah, that sounded good. It's an affirmation that what that truth is, that you wholeheartedly agree with that, and it is so convicting in your life that it brings about this strong affirmation of amen. And whenever they heard what had been said in those first two hallelujahs, hallelujah to you because you're Savior and you're the God of power and glory who saved us from that false religion. And hallelujah to you because you have judged those false governments and that economic system controlled by the enemy and you set us free. The 24 elders and the four living creatures said, amen. What a holy affirmation and you are to be praised. You are to be praised. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Then look what it says in verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, more than likely, either the voice of God the Father, more than likely. Because this is a focus in on, on on, on giving praise and glory to the Son and what he's done. So probably the voice of the Father says this. Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, and you who fear him, the small and the great. This is what he's calling. He's saying, I don't want just the tribulation saints to praise God. 
I don't want just the 24 elders to praise God. I don't want just the uh, four cherubim to praise God. I want all living creatures to praise God, for he is worthy. And I want every bondservant, every person who fears God, whether they're small or great, I want them to join in in the final hallelujah. Look what it says in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sounds of many waters, as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, they're all joining in, in this final hallelujah. Listen to hallelujah. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. You need to circle that word reigns. That's an important word, reigns. You know why it's important? Because of the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb. Reigns means what? He's doing it right now. He's reigning right now. Now, what that's a picture of is this. First of all, write this down. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God, at the beginning of the revelation, was on the throne, wasn't he? At the very beginning of the revelation, where did we see God? Sitting on his throne. And he is on the throne at the end of revelation. Okay? What I'm saying that to you for is God never relinquishes his throne. He's always on his throne. Whether you think he is or not, he's always there. All right? And he's always in charge. Even when things are harshest, even when sin seems to be in power, even when sin seems to control, God is still on the throne. Always. Never gives it up. Never gives it up. But what we found happening in chapter 19 in the verses after this, I told you not in chronological order, but what we read about last week is that there was a battle, the battle of Armageddon. And in that battle of Armageddon, all the kings of the, and all the nations gathered together in great deception to fight against the Son of God and his army. And the Son of God is going to come and going to place his feet on the Mount of Olives. Remember that. And he is going to judge all those nations and all those armies who come against him. And I told you that it says in the book of Zechariah that they literally rot. Their skin and flesh rots off their bones. The eyes rot off in their eye socket. And their tongues rot in their mouth. He's going to come and he's going to judge them. He's going to be king and king and lord of lords over it. That's what it says on his thigh when he rides in on the white horse. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And at that point in time, he conquers all the kingdoms of the world. And the old beast and the old false prophet. And he takes Satan and locks him up. In other words, God is always reigning. Jesus is always reigning. But when that happens in the battle of Armageddon, he takes his throne and puts all other kingdoms, all other thrones aside. He is the only throne. And therefore, now that he is the only throne, it says, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. He is reigning. He is ruling, which this introduces us to what is called the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand-year reign. We'll talk about that next week. The thousand-year reign. 
When did the thousand-year reign happen? The thousand-year reign begins when Jesus Christ comes in the second coming, there at the Battle of Armageddon, to defeat the enemy. Christ comes, and he will reign on this earth for a thousand years, the millennial reign, all right? He is going to be reigning over this earth. Do you get that in your mind? Let's go back over again. Remember, the rapture of the church happens. That ushers in seven years of tribulation. The church is gone. The church has been raptured. He came in the air, and they joined him in the air. And bless God, I'm going to join him in the air. Amen? I'm going to be with him in the air. Seven years of tribulation happened. The first three and a half years, the old Antichrist comes, and he gets power and seems as though he's going to be a blessing to everybody. Three and a half years into it, he breaks the treaty with Jerusalem. And when he breaks the treaty with the Jews, he's going to place himself as being the only God. He's going to wipe out that old false religion at that time. He's going to be the only God, going to put an image of himself in the temple, which is the abomination of desolation. And it sets forth some horrible years of three and a half years of that horrible, and it's called the Great Tribulation. And it's going to end, the end point of that is going to be whenever he defeats those armies at the Battle of Armageddon, he comes, he establishes his thousand-year reign. And what they're praising God for is this. He has come to reign. He has come to rule. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus is in charge? When Jesus is ruling and reigning? It's not man ruling and reigning. It's not elected officials ruling and reigning. It's not dictators ruling and reigning. It's the Son of God in all his righteousness who reigns. And those who know him and those who are redeemed by him and those who have a relationship with him, we shall join in saying with all the multitude, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. He reigns. The fourfold hallelujah of the revelation. Then that brings us to a glorious event, a wedding. It's called the marriage of the Lamb. Look there in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, throughout the New Testament, and as you studied God's word, I know that you probably realize that there is a bride. And there's a bridegroom that's prominent in the New Testament. Jesus talks about himself being the bridegroom. John the Baptist, when he introduces Jesus in John 3, verses 38 and 39, I believe, he introduces Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. When Jesus was asked why his disciples did not fast, he said, Why should they fast while the bridegroom is present? There will be a time when the bridegroom will be gone and they will fast. 
Jesus identifying himself as the bridegroom. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, he identifies very distinctly that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. And then who is the bride? The bride is the church. The church. Not just believers. The bride is the church. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 5. He says just as there is that relationship between the bride and the bridegroom, that man and his wife, there should be also that relationship which is a mystery, the relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church as the bride. Get that in your mind. Not all redeemers, redeemed, not all believers, not all, just the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. And now it comes time for the marriage of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. Jesus, the bridegroom, Jesus, the lamb. Now it's come the marriage of the lamb. To fully understand that, you have to understand the Jewish culture and how they did their weddings that were distinctly different from how we do our weddings. For one thing, ladies, I want to tell you something. Y'all listening? Every woman, I want you to listen to me. All you little girls, I want you to listen to something, okay? In our culture, when there is a wedding, the focal point of the wedding is the bride. The bride. The wedding is all about the bride. Matter of fact, when you're teaching people and training people how they're supposed to stand, the attendance to the bride, you tell them this. Listen, when that bride walks in, you keep your eyes on her and you turn your body wherever she is so that whenever they're looking at you, you're reminding them. They're not supposed to be looking at you. They're supposed to be looking at that bride because it's all about her. Everything is important. The bride, that is her day. Hallelujah, amen, great and wonderful. I heard that, ladies. That wasn't the way it was in Jewish culture. Do you know who the focal point in the Jewish culture was? The bridegroom. Not the bride. The bridegroom. Some of you are saying, well, I'm sure glad we're not Jewish. <laughs> it's the bridegroom. And you know how that, you know, you know how it came about? Hold on to this, you teenagers. Hold on a second. Listen. The first thing that happened regarding the marriage was this. The two parents got together and arranged the engagement while they were still young. It was called to be betrothed. You'll see that word when you're talking about Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed to one another. That's another word for engagement, but it was a very serious thing. To be betrothed was just like being married without a physical relationship. Matter of fact, if somebody were unfaithful to uh, one of the other whenever they were betrothed, it was just like adultery. That's why whenever Joseph heard or he thought Mary had, had a child and had a relationship, he's going to put her away. Remember that? And they were just betrothed. But there was this engagement. And it happened when they were very young. Now, what I said about that young people, listen to me, that meant your mama and daddy picked out your husband. Or your wife. How y'all like that? Y'all like that? Think we ought to go back to that? Y'all not shaking. I only see one or two. The rest of you, I'm, we're going to. Okay, parents, we want you to figure out who they're going to marry. They don't really care. No, we don't want that. We want to pick them out. 
The father and mother got together and they arranged who they're going to marry when they were very young. Then there would be a, a time between it, okay? There'd be a time between. The bridegroom would go back to his family. The bride would stay with her family. The bridegroom, the whole time, is preparing to get his bride. He's preparing his occupation. He's preparing for monetary means. He prepares for a home for him to bring his. There is a preparation time. He is preparing a place for her. And whenever he prepares the place for her and he gets everything settled that he wants to get settled, then he comes to get his bride. It's not announced. And it's saying, I'm going to come get you in a couple of weeks. It's just when the bridegroom gets ready, he comes to the bride's house and he comes to take his bride. And she comes and she goes with him. And whenever she goes with him, she goes to the house or the place that he prepared for her. All right? And, and all the other family and friends, they would come along with him and gather with him. And whenever they got over to the groom's house, not, not the bride's house, over to the groom's place and the groom's house, they would have a marriage feast. They would have a feast. And usually about the end of the first day of the feast, then they would go in, the bride and the bridegroom would go into nuptial tent. They would have, consummate their marriage. And then the next day, the feast just continued. And that feast would go for a week, go for two weeks. It went for however long and however uh, rich the people were. In other words, based on how long, how much money they had, how long the feast went. Week or two weeks, something like that. And that was how they were married. That's how what took place in relationship to that. That is the culture whereby Jesus teaches about the church as being his bride. In other words, who was it that figured out and who was it that made the arrangement between the bride, the church, and Jesus? It, it was the heavenly father, wasn't it? He set that plan. And he set that plan together and he said that this is the bride... And here's the bridegroom, and it says this, that whenever he comes, he meets her, he meets her, and he even died for her. Well, Jesus did, right? But then he left here, and he went, and what did he say he was doing in John 14? I am going to prepare, what? To prepare a place for you. That's the words of a bridegroom. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I have prepared that place, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So see, my friend, the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church is Jesus coming to get his bride and to take his bride to what? To the place he prepared for her. That's the picture of the rapture. Now. What happens in that? What takes place in that? It tells you right here something very interesting. That's what it says. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Listen to this now. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the, you ought to underline this, the righteous acts of of the saints. Now, if you hold on, I'm going to tie some scripture together that you probably have never thought would relate to one another. I'm going to tie it together for you, all right? So think about that. He takes her to his place, 
And at that, the first thing that's going to happen there is she is going to prepare herself. She is preparing herself for the wedding. She's preparing herself for the bridegroom. Now, how is she going to prepare herself? It says, well, she's going to prepare herself by being dressed in fine linen. In fine linen. And then she's going to have the adornment, adornment upon the fine linen. Now, remember this. If y'all, y'all remember, did y'all ever have Latin or anything where you had to dress up like Romans? Okay, well, Romans, in, in the same way in the Jewish culture, they usually had two garments they wore. One garment they wore was the innermost garment called a tunic. It was a solid piece. And the outer garment in the Roman culture was called the toga, the toga. The inner garment was the most important thing because that clothed you. The outer garment was more for a decorative. It would be for decoration, adornment. Well, listen, whenever that, whenever that bride is brought to Jesus, the first thing is, is she is clothed in white linen. You know why the bride is clothed in white linen? Because the tunic, that which is the closest to her, that tunic is a picture of the white linen or the purity that Jesus Christ brings in our life. Did you know that when Jesus sees you, he sees you as white? He sees you as, as spotless. Your tunic is spotless. Not because of you, because of who? Because of him. He's the one that made, he's the one that made you spotless. He's the one that made you acceptable. And so the tunic is like white linen. It's, it's beautiful, acceptable. But on the outside, there's the toga. And the toga was for the adornment. The toga was for the decorations. It was what would make one beautiful. And where the tunic is provided by the bridegroom, where the tunic was provided to make that bride uh, holy and acceptable and clothed in righteousness, the toga was the responsibility and is the responsibility of the one who wears it. In other words, the adornment of that is not based on what Jesus does. It's based on what we do. On what we do. Don't miss it. Look what it says. It says right there in verse 8, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. That's how adornment comes to your outer garment. And that has to do with what Paul said was going to happen to Christians. Now listen to me just a second. I'm going to get something straight for you because next week we'll be talking about something totally different. There are a number of judgment seats, right? Most people are are very aware of the white throne judgment. That's the white throne judgment that's going to happen in Revelation 20. It's going to be the dividing of the righteous from the unrighteous. It's what Jesus talked about when he says that he put the goats on one side and the sheep on the other side. That's the white throne judgment. But there's a second judgment, and it's the judgment of the church. The judgment of the church is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the bema of Christ. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about believers there. But if you want to know what happens at the bema of Christ, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. When here it says, that's whenever it says that we're going to take our works, and we're going to take that work, and that works are going to be tested by what? Going to be tested by fire. And that which is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, but that which is gold and silver or precious jewels will be lasting. And those things will come through the fire, for they are the righteous acts of the saints. They are the righteous acts that you live. 
And those righteous acts of what you did that were not wood, hay, and stubble will be used for the adornment of your toga. The adornment of your life. So it does matter how you live. It does matter what you do. It does matter how you invest your life. It does matter what is a priority, not in regard to your salvation, but in regard to your adornment in getting ready for the bridegroom. You got it? So, whenever he comes and gets the bride and carries the bride in the rapture up there to heaven with him, you know what's going to happen in heaven right there? What's happening down here in the tribulation time? What's happening in heaven is the judgment seat of Christ. And there's a cleansing, and there's the burning up of all the dross and all the wood, hay, and stubble, and there's the revelation of what is the beauty and what are the righteous acts of the saints And that is used to adorn that bride, to adorn that bride and to get her ready. And that marriage is going to take place. Now, some people don't know. Some people say, well, it's going to take place in heaven before they come. And others believe that it's going to be in that thousand-year reign, the first of a thousand-year reign, that we're going to come back to the earth, and that's where the marriage is going to take place. The marriage feast is going to take place. I couldn't tell you. I'm just glad I'm going to be part of the bride. Amen. (laughs) But whether it takes place there or whether it takes place here, there is this marriage that's going to take place and the marriage feast. The marriage feast. David Jeremiah, in in his commentary, he believes that the marriage is going to take place here back on the earth when Jesus comes with his saints. You remember? Whenever they're all dressed in white robes and, and they're all white linen, white horses, they're all coming with him. The millennial reigns where the marriage is going to happen. And here's what he thought. He says this. He said, you know, the marriage feast lasts as long as a person has money. It was in relationship to how much money they had, how much wealth they had. And said, God's marriage feast for his son and for his bride is going to last a thousand years. He thinks, he thinks the entire millennial reign is the marriage feast of the Lamb. Well, God can afford it, amen? <laughs> God can afford it. But that entire period, I don't know if it's that entire period, but I can tell you this. There's going to be the marriage and there's going to be the marriage feast. Now, look what it says right here. So you can get it all tied together. Look at verse 9. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. It is the fourth of seven Beatitudes. There are seven Beatitudes in the Revelation. This is the fourth one. Blessed. Blessed are those who what? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not talking about the bride. The bride's not invited to the marriage supper lamp. She's in the wedding. Amen. You don't invite the one who's in the wedding. But it says all of those who are blessed, who have the opportunity to be invited to that wedding feast. The church is the bride of Christ. But all those Old Testament believers, they've been invited to the wedding feast. All of those tribulation believers who are over here, who have come to know Christ in that difficult time, they're all invited to the feast. They're not the bride, 
But they've been invited, and blessed are happier they because they have been invited. One of the interesting things is in the kingdom age, the kingdom age is this thousand-year reign. In the kingdom age, there's a big distinction between the church, the bride of Christ, and those who are the Old Testament and tribulation believers, for they are the guests at the wedding. A big difference. Now, when you get into the eternal state and eternal realm, there'll be no difference. But in this kingdom age, there's a distinct difference between the church, the bride of Christ, the one Jesus came and died for, gave his life for, the one he came to get. Big difference in them and Old Testament are tribulation saints. Final thing, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Angels revealing this to him. And oh, John gets so overcome, he falls on his face. He just falls on his face to worship this angel. And the angel says, hey, don't worship me. Never worship a servant. You worship the Savior. Amen. Never worship the delivery man. You worship the bridegroom. Never get caught up on what I might say, but get caught up on who he is. That's the most important thing of all. Now, Here's the question that I have for you. The most important question today is this. Are you a part of the bride? Are you a part of the bride of Christ? Have you been made clean and taken the tunic of Christ and his righteousness in your life? If you haven't, you need that. You need to give your heart to Jesus today. Don't wait anyone else. You give your heart to Jesus today. You make sure the righteousness of Christ is upon you. Second thing, child of God, it does matter how you live. It does matter what you do. It does matter how you spend your life. For those righteous acts, those things that you're living your life doing, are what is the adornment of your life at the marriage. That's who you are. Make a commitment to let your life count. And make a difference. Whatever God needs you to do, however God's spoken to you, I pray that we'd all respond. Give our heart to Christ. Make a fresh commitment to live our life for Christ. Join this fellowship if God has directed you to do that. But leave here above everything else. Leave here with a hallelujah in your heart. Amen? <laughs> uh, I, I want to challenge you to do this this week, all right? You think you can do this? Can y'all remember this till this afternoon? Do it before the afternoon's over because you won't remember it tomorrow. You won't. You won't remember what tomorrow. So this, let's, let's commit together that before we get back together next Sunday, we've said four hallelujahs. Can y'all do that? Just say four hallelujahs. Just do it. Go ahead and do it today. All right. You won't remember it. So, but, but we're going to say four hallelujahs. And, and we're going to say, the Lord be praised or praise the Lord because of, and, and just tell him why. You give him that hallelujah. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, 
I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.